I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. This is okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, and we are back. That's right, folks, after an extended hiatus, I'm going to be back making podcasts about everyone's favorite topic, economics. I want to apologize for going dark on all of you, uh, especially for how long it lasted, too, Uh, but let me assure you that it was unavoidable. You see, out of a desire for, uh, I don't know, efficiency, I guess, uh, my wife and I decided to take on all of our major life events in the span of about a year and a half. Uh, Since the last time I put out an episode, I started a new job, Uh, we got married, uh, bought a new house, sold our old house, moved, got pregnant, and had a baby. Well... She had the baby. I was mainly there in charge of morale. So, as you can see, I've been a little busy lately. Uh, Despite all of that, I would have liked to have kept putting out podcasts, but there just really wasn't time. Uh, For those of you who stayed subscribed all this time, let me thank you for hanging in there with me. Obviously, I don't charge anything for this podcast, and I don't run a Patreon or anything like that. Uh, partially to give me the flexibility to not put out content when I need to, uh, and partially because I looked into it and decided I had no desire to manage such a thing. Uh, But even though I didn't have any financial obligation to keep creating content, I still felt bad every time I got a new request to join the Facebook group or when I would scroll through my own own podcast library to see the date from the last episode get further and further into the past. Uh, Yes, by the way, I am subscribed to my own podcast. Uh, I don't know why you, you would listen to anybody who wasn't. I am happy to be back. And I've got a long list of topics that I want to cover in future episodes. Uh, to, to be up front, uh, 
I do still have a job and an infant, uh, so I don't want to start promising clockwork precision when it comes to releases. Uh, I'm going to shoot for getting at least one episode out every two weeks, though if I've got content, I'll happily release them more often. Uh, I do know that I'm going to run into some issues with some of the episodes I have planned uh, that uh, they require guests, and what with the current need for social distancing, I may not be able to make those happen for a little while. Uh, if I can settle into a nice groove and get back to doing an, an episode each week, I'd like to, but I don't want to make promises that I can't keep right now. Uh, we are still going to be alternating between topic episodes and chapters from the Wealth of Nations. In an economics podcast, we cannot skip out on Adam Smith. Uh, plus, <clears throat> once we finally get through the Wealth of Nations, I think that I might pull some other uh, famous work in economics off the shelves and do episodes based on chapters of that. Uh, if there is some other work of economics that you're just itching uh, to have someone else go through and, and do a gist of it for you, be sure to let me know. I am open to suggestions. Um, that reminds me of another piece of house cleaning, and, and this is just to reaffirm the implicit invitation for your input on the podcast. Uh, during the hi hiatus, I saw that I got some very nice reviews. Uh, and, and I'm glad that those of you who are listening or were listening enjoy the show. Uh, but I'm happy to let this whole thing become a little more interactive. The reason I started this podcast was to, to try to create a place for people who may not know much about economics to, to come and get themselves smart on the subject without feeling like they're being talked down to. I hope that that's what I've been achieving here so far, and I'd like to continue to do that going into the future. So if there's a topic that I haven't covered that you want to know more about, let me know. If there's a topic that I have covered, but you want more detail or, or you want to know something specific about that, let me know. Uh, taking your suggestions makes things easier for me because then I don't have to keep coming up with topics of my own. So I'm happy for the assist. I also don't want this podcast to just be me lecturing at all of you. Ideally, I'd like it to be somewhat more of a conversation. And one of the biggest problems that I, I see out there right now is that far too many people are treating important issues of the day as, as either a reason to browbeat other people or just a chance to dunk on those who agree with them or who disagree with them on unrelated matters. Uh, what we need right now are more conversations with the goal of achieving a mutual understanding. And I'd like my podcast to reflect that. When I've had guests on in the past, I don't structure the interview in an adversarial fashion even when I don't agree with the guest, mainly because I just don't think that's an effective way to help people understand a given issue. One of the main themes I, I try to push in this podcast is the fact that issues in economics are often complex, with a lot of exogenous and endogenous variables at play, and that complexity is not a bad thing. Fully unpacking an issue or topic is the, is the best way to ensure that you have a full understanding of it. 
and thus that you have a full understanding of what should be done in regards to it. Complexity is not a bad thing. It's not a good thing either, because these topics will be complex whether you like it or not. Conceding that the complexity exists in the is the first step to opening your mind to the full scope of what's going on and fully grasping the facts. I've often complained in previous episodes that the problem with politics intersecting with economics is that political actors, whether they're politicians or pundits or just your buddy who has a lot of opinions on things, make the critical error of staking out an opinion and then forcing subjects outside of politics, like economics, to fit into their preconceived notions. They're, they're shaping their facts to suit their political opinions rather than shaping their political opinions to suit their facts. These are the people that will often tell you that the solution to our economic problems, whatever they may be, are simple. And that's your first giveaway, that the person saying that has no idea what they're talking about. Okay, <clears throat> soapbox, tan soapbox tangent over. Uh, it's been a while since I got to talk to all of you, and I, I wanted to get that out there now that I'm back. I, I say all that to say this. Feel free to contact me either through Facebook or email. I'm, I'm happy to take on things that you want to know about and highlight things that you're curious about. And that brings us to the topic for today's episode. And I, I thought I'd go with something, well, topical. Uh, for anyone out there listening, years after this podcast you know, posts, right now most of the world is in some form of, of quarantine or, or social distancing as the coronavirus spreads throughout the globe. Now, unfortunately, I have no education, training, or experience in epidemiology. I've read a couple books about it in the past, but I do not have the ability to speak about the spread of an infectious disease with much more authority than your friend with a lot of opinions on things. By the way, for our purposes going forward, that friend with a lot of opinions, we're going to refer to that guy as Jim. But, as this global pandemic has unfolded, it has touched on a topic which does fall under my area of expertise, and that is, as people have been running out to stores to stock up on essential and, well, some non-essential goods, uh, there have been concerns voiced about price gouging. Now, this kind of thing comes up in, in any number of other contexts, especially when there is some kind of natural disaster, like in the wake of a hurricane. The impact of the disaster is so great that the availability of certain goods becomes almost non-existent. So anyone who still has them will try to charge exorbitant prices for them. When these things happen, you will inevitably hear someone with a background in economics state that there is no such thing as price gouging, that the price is simply what the market will bear. And herein lies a problem that I feel economists have with conveying principles of economic theory to the public. Because we all know that charging crazy amounts of money for basic necessities in the wake of a disaster or tragedy it's just kind of a terrible thing to do. 
I mean, these are people who may have just lost their homes, their possessions. They may have lost loved ones. And they are desperate for their basic needs. At which point, we're supposed to be okay with a store owner raising the price of a bottle of clean water to $50? The normal human reaction to that is to look at the behavior of the store owner and call it taking advantage of people at the point of desperation. On a human level, we know that that kind of behavior is despicable. And it is. Now, because of this instinct, there are some very specific laws in place, at least in the United States, I assume internationally as well, to prevent price gouging. They vary state to state, but generally speaking, they stipulate that during a declared state of emergency, like in the wake of a natural disaster, businesses cannot raise the price of necessities above a certain amount. Again, that amount varies with some states limiting it to a certain percentage increase and others using like a, a national average to determine how much prices can go up. And I think that most people would look at laws like that and think, good, that's fair. And on a human level, it is fair. So that brings us to our problem here, because economists are not most people. And many within the field do a less than great job of explaining economic theory in a way that someone who doesn't have a degree in economics can understand. From what I've seen, and, and this is anecdotal, but I think it's still relevant, the, the problem that economically-minded people have when it comes to issues like this is not even explaining things in a way that's too complicated for the average person to understand, but rather failing to realize that they need to explain themselves at all. Just as I started out the, the premise of this episode with, what, what I commonly see in econ is economists simply stating that there's no such thing as price gouging, and then moving on to the next topic. And I think that they really fail to realize just how many people they lose by doing that. It's also a pretty unusual departure from the norm, since every economist that I know is more than happy to go on at length about the intricacies of economic theory when it comes to any other topic. Some of them in fact, are so full of themselves that they make podcasts with them just droning on about different topics in economics for hours on end. But in this one specific topic, economists just seem to feel that the statement speaks for itself. I mean, if you're watching the news in the wake of a major disaster and you're seeing images of people suffering after whatever calamity has hit their lives and the talking heads on TV are, are talking about price gouging and one of them just sort of blows off the issue by saying there's no such thing as price gouging. That would seem inhumane. But here's the thing. Despite our humane instinct to not want to see people's suffering made worse by having to pay insane markups on necessary goods, the economist is correct. There is no such thing as price gouging. You 
you know, if I had the guts to go for the, like, ultra-meta message, I would have just ended the episode right there. But I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> anyway, to explain what I mean when I say that there's no such thing as price gouging, we need to reframe the issue in terms of basic economic theory. So, when a disaster hits, the normal supply chains that would provide local stores with those basic necessities get interrupted. If a Category 5 hurricane is going to hit an area, then most people are going to run out before the storm uh, uh, gets there to stock up on supplies, clearing off the shelves in, in the local re retailers. Once the storm gets there, those same retailers don't have an opportunity to restock as the, the weather is preventing the trucks from making it to them. This interruption of the supply chain may even continue after the storm is passed due to damage done to the local infrastructure. This leaves us with a massively reduced supply of a lot of basic goods. Combine that with the fact that the people of that area who stocked up before the storm had uh, have probably used up most of what they bought while the storm was passing through. And so once the storm has passed, they have a high need to resupply themselves of those basic goods. So, demand for those products is high. Low supply and high demand in any other scenario would require a significant increase in price. Now, if you're saying to yourself, well, yeah, but... This is in the wake of a disaster. Surely the laws of economic theory can take a back seat on this one, given the situation. And to that I would assure you that the laws of economic theory take a back seat for nothing. Ever. Even in the face of human suffering. Especially in the face of human suffering. Okay, be before you turn off this podcast and unsubscribe in disgust... Let me do the thing that I was complaining that economists don't do. And let me explain what I mean by that. The fact of the matter is that when economists say that prices should be allowed to rise in these situations, it is not out of some dogmatic adherence to economic theory, nor is it out of some sadistic desire to increase human suffering. In fact, they're saying that because they believe that this is the best way to avoid human suffering. Though that may seem like an odd notion, forcing people to pay $50 for clean water as a way to pre prevent human suffering is technically correct. You are technically correct. The best kind of correct. In order to see the truth of that, you just need to play out the scenario a little further. So we're in a situation right now where... Supply is low and demand is high. If prices for certain essential goods are allowed to rise, this is going to serve as a market incentive for manufacturers of those goods to get more of them into the affected market. In the scenario of an area hit by a hurricane, the supply shortage is localized, so overall production of the essential goods doesn't have to increase by all that much. However, what does need to happen is that a significantly larger amount of those goods needs to be diverted to this specific part of the country. If prices are allowed to rise to meet the increased demand, 
then the profit margin for those goods will rapidly increase uh, for sales made in the affected area. Because the cost of manufacturing the goods hasn't increased, because the factory that makes them wasn't impacted by the hurricane, this is a huge jump in the manufacturer's ability to make money. This will cause them to divert supply from going to other markets and move that supply into our affected market, effectively flooding the area with an increased supply of the essential goods in order to meet demand. If the price was not allowed to rise, the manufacturer would have no real, at least no real economic incentive to change their behavior. They would ship the same amount of the essential goods that they would have normally to the affected area, and that's assuming that infrastructure damage allows them to do so. If you're making a 2% profit margin by selling a bottle of water for a dollar, and your ability to ship that water into an area that has been struck by a natural disaster is inhibited because of the destruction of infrastructure, you're economically better off just waiting for roads and bridges and railways or whatever to be repaired and then shipping in a new supply. However, if your 2% profit margin uh, in that area is now a 2,000% profit margin, you will be highly motivated to get your product into that market by any means necessary. Under those conditions, manufacturers and distributors will have a lot more motivation to overcome obstacles to get their goods to that market. And it's precisely that motivation which will start the gears of market forces turning, and create the situation where, by chasing these insanely high profit margins, manufacturers and distributors will destroy the very margins that they were trying to take advantage of. Because by overcoming those obstacles and getting their product into the affected market, they are increasing supply. The whole reason that prices rose to create such a high profit margin was there wasn't enough of the goods to go around. But once you start shipping in pallets of bottled water, you're changing that dynamic. You are meeting demand. And as people get their initially overpriced bottled water, demand begins to decrease. Now, you've got yourself a situation where there's high supply and shrinking demand. And in that situation, the price of goods will go down. You can see this all around us today, with a high demand for hand sanitizer, other cleaning products, and somewhat mysteriously, toilet paper. As of right now, prices for these goods have not risen significantly, but a good, good economist would say that they should. The reason is that at the normal price for these goods, manufacturers have no real motivation to ramp up production, as such a move would cost them money in the, in the form of paying factory workers overtime so that they can run the facility 24 hours a day, uh, buying more raw materials to make their product, hiring and paying more truck drivers to get the product out to stores. These moves would undoubtedly increase the supply of these goods in the market to, to meet the increased demand, but because it costs money to do so, if the manufacturer can't recoup the extra money spent, they have no real motivation to do that. 
an increase in price and thus in profit margin for those goods would also ultimately incentivize other manufacturers to try to get in on the game. Right now you have factories that are making and bottling other goods, like shampoo, that could be reconfigured to make hand sanitizer. The recipe for hand sanitizer is not exactly proprietary. It's essentially rubbing alcohol combined with enough aloe to not dry out your hands. A factory that produces something else could halt production of that good, make some minor modifications, buy large amounts of rubbing alcohol and aloe, and switch to making hand sanitizer relatively quickly. The reason that they don't do that is because those adjustments would require an upfront capital investment. And it doesn't make much sense to do that if the price of hand sanitizer is being kept low in spite of increased demand. And if you're, you're still thinking that it would be unfair to charge people $100 for a bottle of hand sanitizer at a time when it's very important that we all keep our hands clean, the economist's answer to that would be to wait. Because with hand sanitizer manufacturers having a motivation to increase their output, and other manufacturers having a motivation to get in on some fat profit margins, soon the market will be flooded with hand sanitizer, and these manufacturers will have fallen into the trap of capitalism. Because I know I've been gone for a while, but I I hope you haven't forgotten that capitalism is not a system where rich fat cats make out like bandits. Real capitalism is a brutal Darwinian marketplace for business owners, where the only consistent winner is the consumer, as companies battle it out for your money. In our example here, they all have have a motivation to increase supply, and so they do. But By increasing supply, with demand holding or even going down, since there's no longer a concern of a shortage of hand sanitizer, prices will go down as well. In fact, we would likely see such a glut of supply in the market that the price of hand sanitizer would wind up being lower than it was before the spike in demand. Allowing prices to rise for these kinds of products would also solve another problem that we're seeing out there right now. Significantly higher prices would reduce the willingness of people to overbuy and hoard essential products. Right now, if you went to the store and they had just restocked their supply of hand sanitizer at, say, around $4 a bottle, why not grab 20 of them? Why not grab 50? It's not like the stuff goes bad. You you hoard it now, and if you need it, you've got it. And if you don't, it can sit on a shelf in your pantry until you do need it. And that next customer coming down the aisle, well, screw them. They should have gotten here earlier. And that's when you do the the old full-arm scoop of the bottles of hand sanitizer off the shelf and into your cart. Now, if instead your local store restocked their hand sanitizer, but they were charging $40 a bottle, you may still want to buy it, but you're much more likely to buy one. And so that next customer coming down the aisle will have plenty to choose from when they get to that spot. 
and they will be much more likely to just buy one as well. And if we're talking about fairness, that's pretty fair. So when an economist says there's no such thing as price gouging, they're not being heartless or cruel. They're just playing the long game. But of course, this is okay, let me tell you why you're wrong. And I may have been on hiatus for a while, but the basic nature of the podcast is not going to change. So now that I've made my fully constructed argument and illustrated it with relatable examples, it's now time to throw the monkey wrench of complexity into the mix and undercut everything that I've just said. Seriously, though, as with all things in economics, what I've just laid out here sounds good. It sounds like it makes a lot of sense, and it does. I wasn't taking you down some elaborate ruse here. Everything I just said holds with economic theory, and it explains why economists would prefer to see prices rise in situations like I laid out. However, that's still a very surface-level perspective on the whole thing, and there are some complicating factors that do need to be considered before we close the book on this one. Remember, we embrace complexity here. My regular listeners usually seem pretty sharp, so I, I'm sure most of you have already shouted one or more of these uh, at whatever device you're listening to the podcast on by now, but just in case, let's go through them anyway. Okay, one. While the scenario I have just laid out sounds pretty good, there's a time factor that I just kind of blew past that can become hugely important to the whole thing. So, so let's go back to the hurricane situation for this one. So with the example of bottled water in the wake of a hugely destructive natural disaster, we, we run into the problem that to the affected people, clean water is a pretty inelastic good. Without it, they will die. And while rising prices will incentivize an increase in supply, that increase will come eventually. Depending on the particulars of the situation, all that additional supply of clean water may not reach the affected area for days or weeks. Even with the significantly increased incentive to get more water to the area, it is still going to take time to notice the opportunity, divert the product, and get it there. All the while, the people who need it very much need it. And this is one of those things that the basic economic theory alone just doesn't handle very well. Yes, increased price will create incentive to increase supply. But in the time it takes for those market forces to achieve that outcome... You may have people dying of dehydration because they couldn't afford the higher price for an essential good like water. You could, if you wanted to, still hand wave that away by saying that if you're worried about the time factor, you should just let the price of the good increase even more. Because as the profit margin gets higher and higher, the incentive to get that product to the affected area increases as well. So that time issue can be solved by allowing for more price increases. And that works fine, in theory. But there are still certain insurmountable limits to how much that time factor can be compressed, 
For example, if the manufacturer diverts products from their factory in Spokane, Washington to hurricane-ravaged Miami, it's still going to take hours by plane or days by truck to get there, no matter how high their motivation may be to make that change. And in a situation where we're talking about a good that is essential to survival, the affected people may not have that kind of time. That sort of leads us into the next major complication, which is the regressive nature of price increases on the population. Basically, when you're allowing prices of certain goods to rise in an attempt to incentivize additional production of that good, there's kind of an element to that theory that implicitly says, well, screw the poor, at least in the short term. Going back to the hand sanitizer example, many of you out there listening might be willing to pay $40 for a thing of hand sanitizer if the price were allowed to rise to that level. But some of you would not be able to afford to pay that much. A sharp increase in the price of goods, even if it's meant to be temporary, will disproportionately affect lower income people out there because it will quickly make certain products cost prohibitive for people uh, making below a certain level of income. And if we were just talking about high elasticity goods, that wouldn't be that big of a deal. But when we're talking about essential, low elasticity goods, it becomes increasingly unfair. Think of someone right now working in fast food. They're considered essential employees. They're making food. And therefore, they still have to go into work. And they want to continue to work because they're paid hourly. So if they stay at home, they have no income. But the nature of their job requires that they interact with a lot of people, which increases the likelihood of exposure to someone carrying the coronavirus. So they naturally want to mitigate that risk as much as possible by buying some hand sanitizer to have on them. But if the price of hand sanitizer was allowed to increase to meet demand, they're quickly going to be in a position where, despite the fact that they need it to protect themselves, the cost is now so high that they cannot afford to buy it. And while they can take some comfort in knowing that the price will eventually go down due to a glut of supply brought about by the increased price, they don't need hand sanitizer two months from now. They need it today. By not being able to afford it, they significantly increase the likelihood of contracting coronavirus, getting sick, and requiring hospitalization, which they also can't afford because they work in fast food. Meanwhile, the more affluent among us can afford to pay the increased price in the short term, and therefore can protect ourselves from the virus. So there's an income inequality issue there on top of the time factor. And in response to those complications, I fall back on the consistent answer to all economic questions, and I can say definitively that it depends. The complications that I've just laid out make for a compelling argument in favor of having all those laws which prevent price gouging in place that we talked about earlier. 
it's unfortunate because by having those laws in place, we are missing out on the ability of market forces to to fully mobilize and incentivize production. But the reality of situations like this may outweigh the economic theory. Obviously, this would change depending on what goods we're talking about and how elastic the demand for them is. And that is all very situationally dependent. Whenever I've had these discussions, uh, when people lay out the economic theory, I, I, I can't help but hear Richard Attenborough from Jurassic Park in my head saying, People are dying. The theory is good. The theory is solid. But certain versions of these scenarios may require us to let go of economic theory for, for just a short while. Because while it would get us to the desired outcome eventually, sometimes eventually isn't good enough. And this is where I think, I know why economists state that, you know, there is no such thing as, as price gouging, and, and leave it at that. I think generally, economists out there see themselves as, as just there to provide the economic perspective. You know, I, I'm here to tell you what the market will do, what the market will bear. And if you want to ignore that because of the specifics of the situation, that's fine. You can ignore that. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, with an economist saying, I'm just here to give you the economics. And if you want to choose to ignore that, you you can, and, and in some situations, it might be best that you do. Uh, but I, you know, without explicitly saying that, I think it creates this problem where the, the economic theory comes off as completely detached from reality. And so that's why I wanted to have this discussion. But what do you all think? Does immediate necessity warrant chucking economic theory aside, or would the greater good be served better by letting market forces do their work? Feel free to let me know your thoughts, and feel free to tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, as far as doing that, nothing has changed. You can still join the conversation at our Facebook group. Just search, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong. Or you can contact me via email at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. All one word, no comma, no apostrophe. So it's good to be back. I, I'm looking forward to continuing to bring uh, you all more episodes as we go. Uh, as I said at the top of the episode, I'm going to shoot for getting new episodes out every two weeks or so. But I ask for your patience in that because I, I may have to fudge that occasionally because... Sometimes life gets in the way. I'll, of course, try to keep that to a minimum, uh, but I ask you to bear with me. Uh, we are going to pick up right where we left off with The Wealth of Nations, so the next episode will be covering Book 2, Chapter 1. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. And with that, I'm Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs>